There's a little bit of excitement in the house today. I'm super glad about that. So welcome everyone. My name is Cheryl and I am one of the Family Life Pastors here at Glad Tidings and I am honored to be able to share it with you today. This is the first Sunday in December. Everyone ready for Christmas? Everyone have all their shopping done? Oh, there's some great laughs in the building. That's awesome. I usually have mine done fairly early and then one of my amazing sons tells me the one thing that he wanted is the one thing I didn't get him. So I'm super excited about that. I love Christmas. I love it all. I love the carols. I love the shopping. I love the lights. I love the wrapping. Did I mention the shopping? I love the shopping. So I thought, I thought I'd find out today what you guys love about Christmas. So when I count down from three to one, I want you to tell me your favorite thing about Christmas. Are you ready? Okay. Three, two, one. Oh, yes. Here's what I love. There's some very practical people in the building. Pastor Tim was food. And there's some very spiritual, like Jesus. Yes. No judgments. All good. Another thing I love is family Sundays. And um, we've been doing this for 13 years now, I think. And it's when all the kids' grades one and up are in service with us. Now, believe me. I know that some of you have a hard time with Family Sunday. I have an eight-year-old and a 10-year-old boy. Believe me, I get it. I understand this might be the only time for you to get a bit of a break, which is so important these days. So let me just take a minute to tell you about the importance of Family Sunday. First of all, we believe that our children and students are full participants in the plans and purposes of God. Amen? They are not the church of tomorrow. They are the church of? Yeah. First of all, we want them to participate. Look at us, the amazing worship team that we had today. We want it to be normal for them to participate and serve and be part of our church family. We also want them to be in his presence. Here's why. You will be never be talked out of something that you experience. So our job as pastors and as parents is to put our kids and create environments for them to hear from God because they actually do hear from God. Um, so I, I remember some amazing things when I was a child. Uh, I remember uh, there was three of us girls in the family and we would all take turns um, seeing which of us could dab my mom's tears at the altar first and there would be fighting. <laughs> You got the last one. No, I got the last one. My poor mom is just trying to have a minute with Jesus, right? <laughs> there are really amazing discipleship moments like communion and baptism, such great opportunities for us to connect with our kids. I also want them to be curious and ask questions. They are watching and listening. Even when you think they are not, they are watching you worship or not worship. They are watching you pray. And I want them to ask all the hard questions in this house so that we have an influence over them. Questions like, uh, what does God do all day with his power? Because it seems that evil wins an awful lot. Uh, yeah. And I'm not going to lie, I know some of you get those questions at home, and you say, that's a great Pastor Cheryl question. I know you do that. I know. And that's okay. Um, yeah, just like parenting, it is not easy, but it is worth it. We do try. We have extra bags. We make bags for the kids. And kids, in that bag, there is like an orangey salmon color sheet that you can write a... a draw a picture. I would like you to draw your best version of me and leave them at the welcome desk and I'm going to pick them up after the service, okay? Adults, no, not, not for you, okay? 
Well, this is our second week in our Advent series focusing on the Isaiah 9 passage. See, Isaiah wrote this amazing prediction that a child would be born to remind Israel of the coming Messiah almost 800 years before his birth. This period of history was very tumultuous with the Assyrians because they were taking uh, the Israelites into captivity in droves, and the prophecy gave them this hope in a dark time that a child would be born to fulfill the divinic covenant. In the chapters right before the one we are about to read, Isaiah gives this bleak picture of darkness and sinful humanity and judgment. It was dark. It was depressing. People were hurting. They were lost. They were overwhelmed. They were lonely. They were probably feeling forgotten or abandoned by God. And here in the midst of the darkness, Isaiah describes how the birth of a Messiah would remedy this hopelessness and bring hope and light. Would you stand with me as we read our passage. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. For those who live in the land of deep darkness, a light will shine. You will enlarge the nation of Israel and its people will rejoice. They will rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest and like warriors dividing the plunder. For you, for you will break the yoke of their slavery and lift the heavy burden from their shoulders. You will break the oppressor's rod just as you did when you destroyed the army of Midian. The boots of the warrior and the uniforms bloodstained by war will be burned and they will be fuel for your fire. And let's read this part together. For a child is born to us. A son is given to us. The government will rest on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. You may be seated. So during this Advent season, we are talking about the names of Jesus. Pastor Tim talked about Mighty God last week, and today we're going to be talking about Wonderful Counselor. I love this name of Jesus. It rings true for me as I'm counseling others. He is my Wonderful Counselor. counselor. And to have this name said first in the passage sets the tone for all the other words. We sometimes say the word wonderful so flippantly, don't we? Oh, it was a wonderful spending the evening with you. It was a wonderful meal. It, we had a wonderful time. But the word wonderful here literally means incomprehensible. The Hebrew word pele is used in the Bible of things that are unusual and beyond the capability of man, often mysterious or difficult things outside the realm of human explanation, something hard to understand. It literally means a miracle. In the book of Genesis, when Abraham's wife Sarah laughed at the idea she would bear a child, the messengers responded by saying, is anything too difficult for the Lord? Is anything too pele? Is anything too wonderful for the Lord? In fact, the Bible only uses this word pele for God's deeds and his words, never for human accomplishments. In Judges 13, when Manoah, Samson's father, asked what the Lord's name was, the angel responded by saying, why do you ask my name, seeing as it's too wonderful? In other words, why do you ask my name, since you, it's so beyond your understanding? I love Psalm 139, and it says this, O oh Lord, you have examined my heart, and you know everything about me. You know when I sit down or stand up. You know my thoughts, even when I'm far away. You see me when I travel and when I rest at home. You know everything I do. You know what I'm going to say before I say it, Lord. You go before me and you follow me. You place your hand of blessing on my head. Such knowledge is, say it with me, too wonderful for me, too great for me to understand. I love the richness of this word wonderful, beyond our human comprehension. 
Not only is he wonderful, he's our wonderful counselor. It seems like the world is full of counselors, right? People trying to give you advice for everything. There's infomercials about what to wear, people advising us uh, what to, how to spend our money, uh, relationship advice. There's not one topic on Google or YouTube that someone doesn't have the answer for. It seems like everybody has advice to give. The original Hebrew word is yotz, yotz, which actually means to advise, to vise, to form, to plan, to purpose, a plan, having a plan. In ancient Israel, a counselor was portrayed as a wise king giving advice to his people. And just a few chapters over in Isaiah 11, it says this, the spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. To take counsel from someone means that you put your trust in them. Some counsel given by family or friends is is great advice, and sometimes we have very terrible advice. Or we don't take the advice we are given because we have a better way of doing things. Several years ago, I was honored to speak at a conference at the University of Waterloo, where I attended uh, for one of my degrees. And I was to talk about children and loss, and I felt very prepared. I had my briefcase. Oh my goodness, do you guys know what a briefcase is? (laughs) For you kids who don't know what a briefcase, it's like an old-fashioned iPad, maybe. (laughs) I had my cell phone. my cell phone, which made me feel very important. And I had my 1986 Chrysler LeBaron. I proceeded to make my way toward the parking lot attendant, who I was sure would recognize me from the brochure as the guest speaker. He didn't. As I approached him, he kindly told me to go around the building, around the small hill, because it had been raining and there was mud and there was a small hill just before the building. I thanked him and proceeded in Cheryl fashion towards the small hill in my high heels. After all, I could see the people waiting for me inside the building. As I started to climb up the muddy and grassy hill, I felt the earth beneath me give way. And I started to fall in slow motion down the muddy hill. Thankfully, my chin and my middle finger on my right hand caught my fall as I put my tooth through my lip. I can still taste that mud and blood mixture. As I stop at the bottom of the hill, I get a glimpse of the parking lot attendant under my left arm as he's shaking his head from side to side. I got to the front door of the building with a swollen lip and finger and with dark mud from my waist to my ankles. As I overheard the organizer say she was still waiting for the guest speaker. I told her it was me. (laughs) And she quickly helped me with my bloody lip and told me where to buy new clothes. And she said, don't worry, you know, your your first session, there's going to be a podium. And I'm like, oh, that's great. What she didn't say was it was a see-through podium. If only I'd listened to the parking lot attendant, I'm sure he was thinking or saying the same thing as he slowly watched me slide down the muddy hill. Sometimes we should take the advice of people who know things. I actually think God thinks the same same thing of us sometimes. If you only listen to me the first time, or if you're me the 15th time, 
But God is much more than just a counselor who gives good advice like my parking lot friend. We sometimes reduce this phrase, wonderful counselor, by saying he's a good psychologist or a good therapist, but he's much more than that. He goes beyond merely coming up with a good treatment plan or a list of goals. He is wonderful beyond my imagination. To be counseled means I put my trust in someone other than myself. He is our wonderful counselor. He can be trusted. And not only are his ways above my ways, but they are beyond comprehension. Advent is a time of celebration where we celebrate God with us and coming to live as one of us. You see, the prophet Isaiah not only declared that the Messiah would be a wonder, not only describes what he does, he describes who he is. He himself is the wonder. And every name of this child points us to the character of who God is. From the very beginning of this verse, especially in the Hebrew text, we see both the humanity and the deity of Jesus. You see, on the first Christmas, a son, a, a child was born, but a son was given. The son was preexistent. The child speaks of his humanity. The son speaks of his deity. The child speaks of him being the son of man. And the son speaks of him being the son of God. The child denotes his humility. And the son says that he is our king. This child to be born to God's people would have the characteristics that demonstrated that God was with him. Isaiah used simple but profound words to describe the wonderful gift God gave to the world, being both man and God. This child would embody the descriptions and designation of God's being and his character. This child in the form of a baby would show the world who God was really like. Jesus' sole purpose was to show us what God was like, to bring glory and shine light onto his Father. His mission stay with me, was not only to die on the cross. Hear me out. His mission was to glorify his father. You see, he came to glorify his father in the way he lived as well as his death. His life pointed people to, to God in every word he spoke, every step he walked, every miracle he performed. And to believe in Jesus is to believe not only what he did for us, but the life that he modeled for us. The life of Jesus matters too. The ultimate way, of course, that he showed us who God is, how deep, how vast, how unconditional his love is, was his death on the cross. It really showed us who God was. The ultimate way he glorified his father was his great sacrifice when we remember, in a few minutes we're going to remember communion. John 17, 4 says, I brought glory to you here on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. And later in the chapter, he says, I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you love me may be in them and I in them. See, glorifying means feeling, thinking, and acting in ways that reflect his greatness, that give evidence to the supreme greatness of all his attributes and his perfection. To glorify God is to mirror his image, which is love and love generously. And Jesus showed us his love perfectly. He is our wonderful counselor that guides and protects our path. Isaiah 48 says this, I am the Lord your God who teaches what is good for you and leads you along the path you should follow. He is a perfect guide and he never steers us wrong. He's never pointed me in a wrong direction. He doesn't, we sometimes think he gets this thrill out of watching us flounder. He doesn't get a thrill of positioning us in the wrong way and playing this cruel game of pin the tail on the donkey and watching us flounder. He wants to be our guide and our help. 
And kids and students that are here, you don't actually have to wait until you're older to ask God for direction and help. He wants to help you now. Sometimes we steer ourselves in the wrong direction. Anyone but me? Yeah. And God in his graciousness works with that too. There are many times in, in my life that he was directing me and I didn't have a clue what he was doing. And I kind of let him know that he didn't have a, I didn't have a clue what he was doing. But he knew. And I tried my best to still follow him. I'm going to tell you a little personal story. Growing up, I watched my mom and my dad pastor, and I got to see firsthand the joy they had in helping people know Jesus. I knew that someday, somehow, I wanted to be in ministry, but I also wanted to be a nurse or a teacher. I remember my sisters and I playing pastor when all our dolls would be lined up, and we'd make sure all their hands were raised when we gave the altar call. And because of this love for ministry, I applied to Bible college. I started dating someone. We got engaged in our third year to be married. I had a plan. I would continue my education to be maybe a nurse or a teacher and also be in ministry with my husband. It was a good plan. Well, three days after graduation, he broke our engagement, and there went my plan. It was a really hard time for me. I was here in Ontario, away from my family and friends. I was so disappointed. Disappointed, of course, that my plans for my future were not being fulfilled. I was really frustrated, and I was disappointed with God. Now, those of you who have gone through emotional, healthy spirituality understand that we are allowed to be mad at God. He created all those feelings, and he can take it. But here's why I was really disappointed. See, I felt my engagement to a pastor was broken that God also took my ministry. I remember saying to God, you took my plan for being in ministry. He listened. He heard me. He probably laughed. You see, I never wanted to be a pastor. There were actually very few opportunities for women pastors when I was growing up. In my internship, my advising pastor actually wrote in his report, Cheryl is not suited for the role of a pastor. I'm out of here. <laughs> I know I can feel like the cringe in the room and it's funny and I had many conversations with God about this. And then one day he said, if you want to know my plan, my plan is for you to be a pastor. And I laughed. And I reminded him of what my interim pastor had said. A few months after graduation, I was working at a church in a daycare part-time, and they said that the only full-time position was part-time at the daycare and part-time as the church's children's pastor. I kindly said, no, thank you. And then I got hungry and needed to work full-time. So I took the position, and four churches, and 30 years later, the rest is history. I know what you're thinking, 30 years? Yeah, I started really young, yeah. I know what you're thinking. And now for my second career choice. Some of you know that I'm also a psychotherapist and specialize in helping children and families cope with loss. I was at a Billy Graham crusade in Toronto several decades ago and I was struggling and during the prayer time I was asking God for a sign as to what direction I should take. I kept saying to God, I need a sign, I need a sign and I have my head down in prayer. And those of you who have been to uh, Billy Graham's service, at the end, he does this amazingly simple call, and people from all over just come. And they had big signs that say, you know, Spanish or German or Italian, so that you could have the gospel mes message and prayer preached in your, your language. 
So when I opened my eyes from asking God for a sign, I looked up and saw someone carrying a literal sign that said children's counselor. So I think I did what most of you would have done. I put my head back down and I said, God, I just need a sign. <laughs> then after a few minutes of my stub, I mean determined self, I realized that God had given me a literal sign. And again, after five more years of schooling and 14 years since then, the rest is history. I tell you my story not to tell you how smart I am because I'm really not, but to show you how awesome and amazing and wonderful God is at directing us and orchestrating our lives. When I married my husband, I said that I never knew he was what I always needed, but God knew. However, I'm also learning that sometimes we don't take the route he is taking to get to the destination. We don't know what route he's taking, and there's lots of lessons to be learned in the waiting. He has the best strategies and the best ideas. Not only that, he has the power to help us do them and put them in practice. So what evidence do we see that Jesus was indeed the wonderful counselor? I'm glad you asked. We will have to go to the New Testament to see the fulfillment of the prophecy Isaiah was talking about. We see it in a real time through the real person of Jesus Christ. We see how Jesus talked and interacted with the people of his day. There are so many New Testament examples of this. Nicodemus, the woman at the well, the paralyzed man. But I thought today we would focus on the woman caught in sin found in John verse 8. In this passage we're going to read, we see the religious leaders of Jesus' day trying really hard to trap Jesus by bringing a woman caught in sin, not being faithful to her commitment. By Levitical law, she should be stoned to death in front of everyone, which was a horrible and shameful way to die. Correct legal procedure also required that both perpetrators in this act must be charged and there would have to be witnesses. But again, the real reason the religious leaders brought her to Jesus was not to establish her guilt or her innocence, but rather to trap Jesus in a no-win situation. What mattered most to them was humiliating Jesus and reestablishing their authority among the crowds of people who were following him. So let's read to find out. In John chapter 8, it says this, Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives, but early the next morning he was back at the temple again. A crowd soon gathered, and he sat down and taught them. As he was speaking, the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who was caught in the act of adultery. They put her in front of the crowd. Teacher, they said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says to stone her. What do you say? They were trying to trap him into saying something they could use against him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote in the dust with his finger. They kept demanding an answer, so he stood up again and said, All right, but let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. And then he stooped down again and wrote in the dust. When the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest, until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. Then Jesus stood up again and said to the woman, Where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. And Jesus said, Neither do I. Go and sin no more. I'm very visual. I love this story. It is rich with who Jesus is. It tells me so much about Jesus as our wonderful counselor. First of all, he listened. Good counselors listen. David Osberger said this quote, which I love, being heard is so close to being loved that for the average person, they are almost indistinguishable. Then he said very few words. How many know that our words get us in trouble sometimes? 
We talk too much. I read a wonderful quote. Um, I get it right. It said, wisdom is knowing that not everything requires my response. I'm like, oh, that's actually quite good. He listened, and he said very few words. He spoke and then left time for self-reflection, and he wasn't bothered by the silence. All right, but let the one who's never th sinned throw the first stone. The silence must have been deafening. You see, they were, judging her, they were judging her, and Jesus was basically saying, don't you judge other people because they sin differently than you do. Some of the harshest words Jesus spoke were directed to the religious leaders of the day. I love what Jesus said. I can picture it. All the people standing around with their rocks in their hand, laughing at her, humiliating her. I bet her head couldn't be further into the ground. The shame must have been tangible. And after Jesus spoke, I bet you you could hear the sound of rocks hitting the ground one by one. His quietness led his audience to self-reflect. It allowed time for the person to own it. You see, in that statement, let him who's never sinned throw the first stone, he himself was the only person qualified to do it. He was the only sinless one in the crowd. And then what did he say? Where are your accusers? Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. And the writing in the sand. Lots of people have lots of things to say about the writing in the sand. I'm not sure what he was writing. It's the 1245th thing on my list to ask him when I see him. Some scholars have said it was common practice for a priest to have written the names of the accused in dust or sand on the temple floor or another temporary method. So it's reasonable to assert that when Jesus first stooped, they were expecting him to perhaps write the name of the accused woman in the dust. Maybe the religious leaders were waiting for Jesus to shame her further by telling everyone her name. But Jesus came to save sinners, not to shame sinners. And I'm just simple enough to believe that he could have just been doodling. I kind of think he was just kind of going, are you guys done? He also asked great questions. Counselors asked great questions. He confronted her without judgment, and he left her with hope. At that moment, he was her wonderful counselor. He gave her hope instead of condemnation. He counseled her to trade her shame and her loneliness for freedom and salvation. He met her at her need in her brokenness and poured in grace and truth. He didn't leave her in her sin, but called her to a different life. I absolutely love this quote by A.W. Tozer. It says this, We please him most not by frantically trying to make ourselves good, but for throwing ourselves into his arms with all our imperfections and believing that he understands everything and still loves us. And the very next part of the chapter, Jesus continues to tell the religious leader who he is by saying he's the light of the world and that he was sent by the Father. He said to them, since you don't know who I am, you don't know who my father is. If you knew me, you would also know my father. As we talked earlier, Jesus came to glorify and reflect God. Just like Jesus came as a perfect reflection of who God is, we are also called to be reflections to our world about who God is without the perfect part. We have access to this wonderful counselor because the spirit also resides in us. We can reflect God's character of being the wonderful counselor too. I challenge you this week 
to really listen to people, to hear their stories of pain and loss and hurt and respond in ways so that others will know who God is. I think the best part about being a counselor and the best thing a counselor can do is to instill hope to the one being counseled. The arrival of the Messiah, the wonderful counselor, meant everything changed. The arrival, arrival of this beyond my understanding, blow my mind, incomprehensible deity 2,000 plus years ago in the form of a baby, folks, it changed everything. Remember in the beginning of our time, we talked about how people in Isaiah's time were walking in darkness. They were sad. They were lonely. They were disappointed. Maybe they felt God abandoned them. Maybe they couldn't see him at work. Sound familiar? Just like the arrival of Jesus brought great hope to Israel over 2,000 years ago, in 2022, people are still lonely. They're sad. They're overwhelmed. And maybe even feel like a little bit that God has forgotten them. Thousands of years later, the arrival of Jesus into our lives still brings hope. And he doesn't just bring hope. He is our hope. See, that hope, it changes everything. It changes our perspective. It changes where we place our trust. It changes what we value. It changes what we put our faith in. It brings peace, as Steve will talk about next week. Most counselors have a plan, some action steps to reach your goal. Jesus didn't come with a plan. He wasn't born with a little scroll in his fist that was God's plan for salvation. God sent Jesus as the plan. He was the full embodiment of God's plan. This plan to reunite us to himself, to redeem us. You may be here and you might say that you're facing a really hard life decision. Or maybe you're here struggling to believe that he is our wonderful counselor. Do you know what Jesus says? I love the songs that we, we sang. Isaiah and I don't coordinate on that. But he says, I am here. I have arrived. Emmanuel, God with us. You might say, it's been a few really tough years. Jesus says, you can trust me. I'm here. You might say, if only you knew my sin. Jesus says, I do. I'm here. You might say, I've gone too far, I'm beyond help. Jesus says, never, I am here. You might say, I can do this on my own. And Jesus says, you never have to walk alone. I am here. And I don't know the circumstances you find yourself in. I don't know the heavy burden and heartbreak that is sometimes hard to carry. It may have taken all your courage to even get to church this morning or watch the service online. It may... I don't, I don't see your everyday pain, physical or emotional. But friends, I do know God. I know he is good. He is love. He is just. He is for you, not against you. He is our ever-present help in trouble. He sees you. He sees it all. And you know what he says? He says, come. I am here. I'm wondering if we can just say, have a moment to pray. Let's pray together, maybe with our eyes closed and our heads bowed. I'm wondering if there are some of you here today that might say, you know what, I'd like you, Cheryl, to include me in your closing prayer. Maybe you're here and you say, Cheryl, I, I'm going to really through a really hard time and I need Jesus to be my wonderful counselor. Maybe you can just raise your hand and I'd love to pray for you before Pastor Tim comes to lead us 
in communion. Just slip, slip your hand up. Yes, I see those hands. Yes, Jesus sees them. He is here, my friends. Thank you. Anyone else? We'll just wait a minute on the balcony. You say, you know what? I need this wonderful counselor. Yes, yes. Father, what a wonderful counselor you are. Thank you for showing us who God is and being the perfect reflection of him and making him known and helping us understand that he is always with us. I pray for my friends who need you to reveal yourself to them today. Would you help them see that you are in the midst of their situation? And we all say a resounding faith-filled amen. When we stand to our feet this morning, what an incredible word, amen. Pastor Cheryl, thank you so much for your transparency and just that incredible word here today. As we came in today, uh, you should have received some elements uh, outside the door here. Here at GT, we love to participate in the sacrament of communion on the first Sunday of every month. And you know, throughout church history, there have been many views and ideas about what actually happens through this, what's called sacramental act of communion when the church gathers together. And there have been many theories about this that people have kind of wandered into for many millennia now of, of this, this powerful element of communion and the different things involved in it and intricacies. You know, I personally believe in what's called the pneumatic presence of Jesus through the table of the Lord. That it's not that these elements become the literal body or blood of Jesus when we participate in this, but at the same time, I believe it's so much deeper than just memorialism. It is remembering, we do remember, but it's deeper than that. And then the pneumatic presence kind of idea of communion is that we believe the Holy Spirit is here as we participate in this to bring about the healing, to bring about the redemption, to bring about the reconciliation and transformation to what Jesus accomplished at the cross. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul said these words, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed. He took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. His body was broken so that we might be healed. Amen? The body of Jesus was broken so that you and I might receive healing, physical, spiritual, emotional, relational. He went on in the same way he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And I believe it's impossible for us to focus on Advent and the arrival of Jesus without connecting it to the death and resurrection of Jesus. I love what Pastor Cheryl said. Jesus didn't come with the plan. Jesus is the plan. 
Jesus is the full embodiment of God. If we have questions about the heart of God, we look to Jesus. He is the one who reveals the heart and nature of the Father. So for a moment, will we just allow ourselves to examine our hearts and families, if you're here with your children right now, would you just gather around them as well and just really lean into this moment? And let's just take a few moments to just pray. Holy Spirit, search our hearts. See in us if there's any way that is not right before you. And help us to receive the grace that is offered in this moment. Thank you, Jesus, for your body. Let us partake the bread together. We thank you, Jesus, for your blood. Let us partake the cup together. Can we close in singing this? song, I Speak Jesus, just a chorus here this morning together and collectively. the sacrifice that you made we thank you for the power of resurrection that you instilled and we thank you that you are coming again for your church and your people help us to have great expectation of your arrival every single day in our lives and help us to look forward to that one and great and final day in Jesus name we pray amen if you need prayer for anything, we want to invite our prayer team to be around the front. They would love to pray with you. Go in the power and strength and goodness of his might. And remember, Jesus is the plan. Amen? Bless you.